Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we dig into the results of a recent survey of voter opinions on a range of topics, from the handling of the pandemic to how statewide ballot questions are worded. And we listen back to a conversation with two researchers studying the beneficial impacts of the sounds of nature. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. A recent nonpartisan survey gives us insight into the opinions of Coloradans on some pretty big topics, ranging from COVID-19 mandates to the wording on this year's ballot questions. The Colorado Political Climate Survey is conducted each October by our next guest and the team at the American Politics Research Lab at the University of Colorado Boulder. Anand Soki is the director of the American Politics Research Lab and is an associate professor of political science at CU Boulder. He's here with us to talk about how the survey operates and some of their early findings. Anand, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Erin. So this survey seeks to gauge where Coloradans' opinions are on a pretty big variety of topics. Can you tell us first about how you conduct the survey and the range of Coloradans that you seek answers from? Yeah, no problem. Um, So we conduct this survey every year online, and we partner with the the company YouGov um, to do a representative sample of Coloradans. So it's 800 Coloradans, um, and they are um, selected through um, kind of a a multi-stage kind of statistical process to be part of this online sample. And then they are weighted to represent um, different characteristics of Coloradans. And we ha- we use a couple of different weights in our analyses, one to kind of generalize to more likely voters and one to generalize to the adult population. I want to talk first about the pandemic. Uh, we all know everyone has an opinion on something COVID-related, and it can be a delicate topic sometimes. What questions did you choose to ask of Coloradans here? Yeah, so we asked a lot of COVID questions. Um, it's big news. And <laughs> Yeah, so in, in some ways, right, we're fortunate or maybe unfortunate for all of us that we've been dealing with this for a long time. But because of that, we were able to ask uh, quite a few questions about this. So we, we asked, first of all, about people's um, opinions about political figures handling of the ongoing pandemic. Um, so that's one thing we asked about. We also asked about people's support for various kind of policies and actions to combat COVID-19. And then we asked about um, the ways that these kinds of actions intersect with people's kind of ideas about freedoms and the proper role of government, civil liberties, that kind of thing. So kind of um, there was about a, a three, kind of a threefold, you know, kind of um, approach in our questions about COVID. Well, you know, with the understanding, there's probably a lot of data there. What did you find in uh, 2021? We asked about uh, 
Kalaran's uh, support for political figures handling of the pandemic. And in some ways, what we find there isn't too surprising. Um, so when we ask about their support of, for Biden's handling of the pandemic, it's it's kind of middling support, right? So um, approval of Biden's handling of the pandemic sits at about 47%, with 48% disapproving. For Polis, the numbers are slightly better at 54% approving. However, it's really important to note, and, and this is going to be a theme for everything we're going to talk about here with COVID, that um, this masks, pun intended, deep partisan divisions on all of these items, right? So um, when, you, um, when you look at approval numbers, um, these overalls, you have to break them out by Democrats and Republicans, because when you think about something like Biden's approval, for example, 88% of Colorado Democrats approve of Biden's handling of COVID-19, um, while 91% of Colorado Republicans, and this is self-identified, 91% of Colorado re Republicans disapprove of Biden's handling of COVID-19. 85% of Colorado Democrats approve of Polis's handling of COVID-19, um, but 73% of Colorado Republicans disapprove of Polis's handling of, of COVID-19. And so you see these really deep partisan divisions um, when people are talking about political leaders at the state and national level. By contrast, right, these numbers are a little bit different when we asked about local leaders handling of the pandemic. And this is an issue which is um, also something, right, that definitely intersects with local politics. And, you know, it's probably the way in which people interface with the pandemic most directly all the time, right, is through kind of local interactions. 60% of Coloradans approve of local leaders handling of this, though there are again partisan divisions, even they're a little bit more muted here though. There's 72% approval among Colorado Democrats of local leaders handling of the pandemic. It's 51% support among Republicans. So it's definitely higher, but it's still, it's still more muted among Republicans. If you're just joining us, we're talking about the latest Colorado political climate survey results with CU Boulder's Anand Soki, an associate professor of political science and director of the American Politics Research Lab at CU. Let's turn to politics in general. Did you look into how Coloradans were feeling about the leadership of Governor Polis or other public figures? Yeah. In terms of kind of, uh, we asked a battery uh, about approval of figures um, and we asked this of kind of, you know, we, we looked at this by, you know, the general population, not just likely voters. Um, and uh, approval of Biden in the state um, when the survey was in the field, which was um, during, during the, the, the kind of voting period, if you will, right, late October, October in the first days of November, um, given our, our mail balloting format here. Um, you, say, you see that approval of Biden really largely mirrors national averages, low 40s. Um, though it's highly divided by partisanship, just as with everything else I've talked to you about this morning. Um, Polis receives slightly better marks, 52% uh, approval versus 37% disapproval and 10% saying they weren't sure. Um, though, again, that is, again, highly divided by partisan partisanship. Um, interestingly, we also asked about Hickenlooper and Bennett um, being as their statewide figures. Um, and they record identical job approval numbers at 46% approval, though, as with all of these, right, that masks very high support among Democrats, very low support among Republicans, and 
uh, weak support among independents, right? So around uh, 25 to 30% um, approval for, for the R2 senators. Many voters this year faced a handful of statewide questions on their ballot. One of the narratives uh, that you're following was about the wording of these questions. There's been some criticism about how they were written and whether Coloradans can fully understand what they're voting on. Uh, maybe that criticism was enough to spur you and your team to ask about it. Um, can you remind us about some of those questions? Yeah. No, thanks for asking about that, Aaron. So voters were faced on, on their, when they when they opened up their ballots, right, with um, several kind of statewide measures that they had to kind of wade through. And um, people were, were you know, um, given um, a, a state ballot information booklet, um, which was designed to, I think, help people navigate these issues. But um, as you noted, right, like these were difficult ballot measures and making sense of them was, uh, it's hard, right? You're asking a lot of people, even people who are pretty, you know, highly informed. Um, and these were appearing um, in an off-year election. So, you know, last year in 2020, we saw, you know, among active voters, we saw, you know, record high turnout. Um, 80, you know, 87% turnout. Um, turnout, you know, this past year was for, you know, just under 40%. So you're talking about a very, you know, that's still pretty high for an off-year election, but you're talking, it's evidence, right, of the fact that you also have remarkably different electorates in these off-year elections versus midterm and certainly presidential election cycles. Um, so you're asking, um, um, a very different electorate, right, to make sense of these issues. And we had Amendment 78, which was a, a state constitutional amendment that was placed on the ballot to require that um, custodial money, so funds that the state has received for specific purposes, be deposited into new funds and placed under the purview of the legislature. So this is, um, some people characterize this as kind of um, constraints on gubernatorial power. Um, and that measure failed 57-43 ultimately. Um, in our sample, which was conducted um, right, you know, was conducted in the weeks before and, and came out of the field right early on election day. So, but before any of the results, um, we, we were uh, basically tracking with this um, when we looked at this by, by likely voters, um, we had them opposing this measure by, by you know, 10 points. 40% said that they were opposed, 30% said that they were supportive. Though one of the stories here is that a substantial portion, right, 30% said that they were not sure about where they stood about, uh, about this particular amendment. Um, and, and we think that's really telling when you actively and kind of carefully poll people and, and give them the option of stating their uncertainty. I think it reflects how difficult some of these ballot measures are for people to wade through. Um, and the fact that they probably um, close, so to speak, fairly late because people aren't sure for a long time, they don't have the usual cues um, about, you know, for how they should vote on these things. And so they have to take some time to figure it out. And you probably see a lot of late action on these types of um, statewide ballot measures. 
That's the first part of our conversation with Associate Professor of Political Science at CU Boulder, Anand Soki. In just a moment, we'll continue with more of the trends from the Political Climate Survey and what researchers will be looking at next year. And we'll hear about a different kind of research that studies the benefits of listening to natural sounds. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. We're talking about the latest Colorado Political Climate Survey results with CU Boulder's Anand Soki. He's the director of the American Politics Research Lab at CU. We've talked about a range of topics at this point. I'm wondering if there are any key trends that have stood out to you through the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, you know, so one, I think one last area maybe to to mention here, and it's certainly been something that has almost been, I'd say, equally prominent in the area of COVID the last two years with the pandemic, roughly. Um, And that is this kind of ongoing conversation uh, across the country about electoral process and confidence in electoral process. Um, And so we asked Coloradans about whether they felt elections both across the country and in Colorado would be conducted fairly and accurately. And overall, 49% 49% of Coloradans agreed that, that elections would be conducted fairly and accurately nationally. Um, about 14% said they weren't sure. While 68% agreed that they would be conducted fairly and accurately in Colorado. So in some ways, right, I suppose that um, uh, we can all feel good that I think Coloradans feel better about process here than they do nationally. Though the, the caveat here, and there seems to always be one um, these days in public opinion work, right? is that in a, in a kind of pattern often repeated, we see substantial differences by partisanship. So 66% of Colorado Democrats agreed elections would be fair and accurate when asked about the country as a whole, um, while only 32% of Colorado Republicans said the same. And when asked about Colorado elections, 91% of Democrats expressed agreement with the statement that elections would be conducted fairly and accurately but only 45% of Colorado Republicans agreed. Note, uh, it's worth noting that independents were somewhere in the middle with 55% agreeing. The other side of this is that, and you kind of hear this ongoing thing about the need for electoral reform, and this has been part of what's come out of Trump's actions, right, in, in during and in the wake of um, the 2020 presidential election. And, and so we asked about the need for electoral reforms in the wake of the 2020 elections, both across the states, so to speak, and in Colorado in particular. And a majority, here, here's the interesting thing, is that a majority of Coloradans agreed that electoral reform is needed nationally. In fact, 63% agreed with that, though only 41% agreed that such reforms were actually needed in Colorado. But again, here, the, the partisan splits are pretty substantial. So when asked about reform across the country, a slight majority of Democrats actually agreed, 53%, though nearly 80% of Republicans agreed, 78% to be exact. Um, when asked about Colorado specifically, only 25% of Colorado Democrats agreed that reforms are needed in Colorado, while a comfortable majority of Republicans in Colorado, 61%, agreed. So I think one of the interesting, you know, there are a couple of things to think about with that. One is that I think this messaging that you've seen on the Republican side about um, electoral fraud and the need for reform, whether or not there's actually any evidence of that, that messaging seems to come through for Republicans in terms of their opinions on these issues. 
But there's also, right, this kind of way in which if you ask in very general sense whether we need electoral reform, you're seeing some partisan agreement with that, both on the Democratic side and the Republican side. But I think it's clear that Democrats and Republicans are thinking about very different things. Republicans are concerned, likely, right, about the idea of fraud. Democrats are concerned about um, actions that might curtail voting rights. Let me wrap up by asking, what are you going to keep an eye on in the coming months? It is early, but do you have a sense yet of what you might be interested in asking in the next political climate survey next year? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we're going to keep an eye on is um, certainly kind of the the way that the pandemic continues to play out um, and and how it intersects with different aspects of economic functioning. Um, in terms of other kinds of social issues, which we're going to be kind of asking about, the the Supreme Court is going to be releasing a lot of really important opinions this term, right? Um, abortion rights restrictions, however you want to talk about this. And so um, there will be, you know, um, there always is, but there will be a renewed national conversation about these issues. And um, we're going to be interested to hear what Coloradans um, have to say about these kinds of dynamics and 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 how Coloradans are, are kind of like um, leaning based on economic uh, and other social considerations as we move into the 2022 midterms, which uh, midterms are typically not, you know, um, good events for the um, president's party. Um, and we'll be seeing whether or not kind of the, the regular pattern repeats itself with the president's party taking losses and uh, or whether the Democrats are able to kind of buck the trend. Anand Soki is an associate professor of political science at CU Boulder. He is also the director of the American Politics Research Lab there. Anand, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing these insights. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. According to recent research from a team of scientists across North America and the National Park Service, listening to natural sounds isn't just soothing, it can positively impact your health. Water sounds are effective at improving positive emotions, and bird sounds are especially effective at reducing stress and feelings of annoyance. Back in April, Colorado Edition producer Henry Zimmerman spoke with two of those researchers to discuss their work and how we can all start to reap the benefits of the natural sounds around us, even in more urban settings. Rachel Buxton is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Biology at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario. And George Widmire is a professor at Colorado State University in the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology. Now, you two and the rest of your team looked at the available body of research on the health outcomes of listening to natural sounds. Tell us about your team and what you found after meticulously studying all of this material. Our team was composed of researchers from three different universities, as well as scientists from the National Park Service. And we collected all available literature in a, in a systematic literature review to look at this growing body of evidence, looking at the health benefits of natural sounds on human health. We found about 36 different studies, and we put all of these studies together in what's called a meta-analysis, which basically analyzes 
all of the analyses from these different studies. And this was important because a lot of these studies occurred in different countries, using different types of sounds, asking different questions. So um, we put them all together and, and what we found was fairly striking, striking positive health benefits from natural sounds. Patients or, or participants in these studies that listen to natural sounds had an increase on average of about 180% in health benefits when listening to natural sounds. And also, you know, big advantages for decreasing stress and annoyance. Rachel's really been driving this exciting research in our group for a long time. And uh, we've been looking at often the, the ecological impacts of human noises on ecological function or animal behavior or community composition. The sort of these questions about possibly, you know, aiming at the negative aspects of human noise on ecological functionality. And in relation to that work, it became clear that there are some really spectacular locations uh, both locally and, and, and across the National Park Service system that give visitors unique and, and really superb opportunities to immerse themselves in, in nature and, and particularly immerse themselves in the sounds of nature, the, the natural soundscape. And as Rachel was sort of digging into this and we were really focused on sort of the negative aspects, increasingly she became interested in the value of these really unique sound immersion locations and, and the potential uh, opportunity that we were missing in directing the public towards these resources, towards these experiences, and that by accentuating the value of them, showing people where they are, we could increase public awareness and public uh, valuation of the natural soundscape. And so I think this paper really came out of that effort of moving beyond just identifying these superb uh, natural sound immersive opportunities to actually quantifying the physical and health benefits from them. Do we know why these particular sound waves, um, like from natural sources, impact our health positively? You can kind of think of it from an evolutionary perspective where humans are really good at picking up on signals of danger and signals of security. So if you think of an acoustic environment that is full of natural sounds, it's a pretty good indicator of a safe environment. What that allows humans to do is, is let our guard down and it allows for mental recuperation. Whereas if you think of the opposite, so an acoustic environment that's really silent, there's no natural sounds or, or very few, that's a pretty good indicator that something's potentially wrong. And what that initiates in humans is vigilance. It certainly does not allow for mental recuperation, and it can actually lead to stress. Your research also involved a sort of public health and soundscape management component. And I thought this was interesting. You got recordings from a ton of different parks and analyzed the distribution of natural sounds and anthropogenic sounds or human-made sounds. And you found that urban parks and parks with high visitation, of course, had more human-made sounds, but there were still plenty of those good natural sounds that positively impact our health. Yeah, we know, especially now we're dealing with a lot of mental health issues, isolation issues. There's enormous opportunity to 
find reprieves uh, for people that can be therapeutic for them during a relatively stressful time. And I think the, the work clearly uh, demonstrates that, yeah, d- despite, you know, cl- classic urban environments where you're inundated with human-made noise and there's sort of that deep drone that you get in metropolitan areas from all the activity, there's still a lot of sound islands or natural sound opportunities in green spaces that can offer people real benefits. And so w- one of the things that we wanted to highlight in this work was that these opportunities exist, identifying them, valuing them, and protecting them is going to ultimately be of great benefit to society. And it should really be a key objective in, in uh, resource management or, or landscape planning initiatives, especially in these urban areas. Linking that back to the results from our meta-analysis, we actually found a little bit of evidence that in groups that listen to natural sounds paired with traffic sounds and other human-made sounds, we actually found greater health benefits than in groups that just listen to the sounds of traffic. So that's kind of good news for those of us who live in cities where you know we go to these green spaces, we're still hearing traffic in the background. But as George mentioned, there's these sort of natural sound refuges where we're also hearing lots of natural sounds over top of that, we're still likely getting a lot of the health benefits from those natural sounds. You know, it sounds like in order to reap some of these health benefits, you don't necessarily need to find a area with pristine natural sounds. You could go over to just say a local park. Absolutely. Although, you know, really the best auditory situation for humans as far as health and well-being is, of course, a, a quiet acoustic environment that has lots of natural sounds. However, we're likely still getting these health benefits, even with noise involved. Rachel Buxton is with the Department of Biology at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario. George Wittemeyer is with the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Conservation Biology at Colorado State University. Rachel and George, thank you for this. This was really interesting. Yeah, thanks again, Henry. It's been great. Thanks, Henry. That's our show for today. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman and Tess Novotny. Our digital editor is Jackie High. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.